Well, we are in um, the book of Jonah first tonight, and Jonah, no doubt, along with Daniel and the lion's den and David and Goliath and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, the book of Jonah is one of the most famous flannel graph books in the world, if you remember the old flannel graph posters where, uh, you know, Jonah's on the boat, then you take the boat away and put the, the whale, and you put Jonah in the whale, and I remember growing up with those, and uh, Jonah... I know what you're talking about, flannel. Flannel graph. Flannel graph. You had color forms. Listen, I'm from Defuniac. Listen, I'm from Defuniac, so maybe we were just a little behind y'all, but we still had flannel graphs when I was a kid, so... Well, Jonah is a favorite children's story because it involves a giant fish. It involves uh, a man getting swallowed by the giant fish. And it has the word vomit in it, which makes every kid say, cool, whenever they go over <laughs> Jonah. So, But uh, the meaning of his name, um, Dove, and the meaning of the book um, oftentimes are not told kids when they're going through it at the ripe old age of seven or eight. And so Jonah means dove. And um, if you want to speculate on why his name is dove, you know, that's one of those things that scholars can do. And um, if you uh, think deeply about the times that a dove is used in Scripture... Does anybody here remember a time that doves were used in Scripture? Noah. 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 Uh, when a dove that flew across and Christ got baptized. Right. Noah so, sent out the dove. Yes. Dove peace. So a dove can be seen as a messenger of peace or as a, say, a manifestation or an illustration of the Holy Spirit's presence. Now, whether that gets into his name, um, you know, that's speculation. The book does not tell us that, but I think it's interesting. Also, um, just something to mention here. Jonah is mentioned in 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, verse uh, or chapter 14, in verse... 25. I'm going to read that to you really quickly. It's verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. He reigned 41 years. He was a powerful king, by the way. Verse 24 says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember, I was telling you that of all the kings of Israel, all of them did evil in the sight of the Lord. In Judah, you remember, eight did right, twelve did evil, but in Israel, all twenty did evil. He did, not, he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Areba. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Imitai, the prophet, who was from gath for the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So that uh, interesting little aside shows that even this wicked king had God's hand in his life, preserving Israel from their enemies. And Jonah seemed to be a prophet of the Lord who even to this wicked king spoke and said, God's going to use you to save his people. Now do what you can in your might. Well, let's take a step back and think. Jonah, even with this pagan evil king, is serving the Lord. And he's serving his nation and his people Israel. Now, there might be, of course he's being obedient to the Lord, but there might be 
I would say a little bit of, of wrong thinking in Jonah's mind where he's thinking, you know what, we're God's people and that's why he saves us because we're God's people and we're important to him. And he begins to camp out in this idea. You know, God promised he'd never leave us. He promised he'd never forsake us. We're children of Abraham. Now you take that, if that is his mindset, we're God's favorite people. He's always going to look after us. And then you take the content of the book of Jonah that we're about to talk to. And you're about to see how God spins his head around and shows him, you think I only care about Israel? You think I only care about y'all? So let's keep this in mind. Let's look at the book of Jonah. Now there's a, a, an outline given here. And we're going to go over the book just in blocks. Y'all are familiar with the story, but we're going to focus more on the end than anything else because that's where the lesson comes. But you're given a, a pretty good you know, outline. This is from a, a book I have called uh, The Old Testament, uh, Survey of Old Testament Introduction. just gives a really good, I use this one straight from them. There's no original hankering with it like there was last week whenever I changed some stuff around. It's just a really good um, outline. First off, God commands Jonah. And so, you know, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach 40 days, and the Lord will destroy Nineveh. So God commands or commissions Jonah, but Jonah rejects it and runs. He runs and gets on a boat, and he runs away. That is chapter 1, 4 through 117. But in the middle of this, God pursues him and will not let him run away from his mission. And so if you remember the story, he's on this boat of international sailors, probably mostly Phoenicians or uh, Greeks. And they are uh, having a good old time and a storm comes and these seafaring people who, by the way... Uh, Sailing in the ancient world was even scarier, scarier than it is today. Um, if you want to talk about uh, just the terror of sailing in the ancient world, um, imagine being dependent on the stars for your navigation every night and the sun during the day and having a storm come and shake you up so much you don't know which way is sideways. Um, so storms were terrifying just because any form of navigation you had at that point was lost. I mean, the only, the only thing you knew is we're going that direction because the wind's blowing us, but that was about it, and that was if you were lucky um, and were staying on the top side of the water. So these uh, sea-hardy sailors start praying out to various gods and throwing the cargo overboard, and Jonah tells them, hey, it's my fault. I'm running from my God. And at that point, they still won't throw him over. And he says, no, do this. Throw me overboard. So they do, and, and the waves calm down. It says that they offer a sacrifice to the Lord. So Jonah's ministry is already gaining converts, just not in the way he um, wanted it to. So Jonah runs and is tossed overboard. Now, the, the most poignant part of the book, besides the end to me, is the third part, and that is Jonah's uh, time alone in the stomach of the fish. And so, from 2-1 to verse 10, uh, Jonah prays. And in that prayer, it makes it sound like he is just at the point of death. You know, he, he believes that he's at the end. And if you can just kind of imagine being deep in the ocean or the Mediterranean Sea, who in here has ever been really, really far under the water? Been what? Really far under the water. Nobody in here has been well, diving before? Out, I used to dive. Uh, 80 to 120 feet. Yeah. That's a little scary down here, too. It's dark. Cold. So, 
I have I have I have free dived maybe ten to twelve feet and my eardrum busted. Um, so I imagine the pressure alone is terrible down there. Um, now imagine being in the gassy, uh, acidic stomach of a giant fish. Have you ever uh, caught a fish and pulled the bait out of its stomach as you're cleaning it and seen it bleached white, by the way? Yeah. Some of y'all have. So I, I talked to a guy one time, and we, we can't prove this. The Bible does not tell us whether this is the case or not, but he said, could you imagine in a tan world of Middle Easterners, this bleached white prophet with no eyebrows, no beard, no body hair, no hair because it's all dissolved, and, you know, bleached horrendous looking skin coming out of the belly of a fish out of the sea and walking to your city and saying, God's going to destroy y'all. Now, we don't know if that's what Jonah looked like, but you can imagine him sitting in this fish stomach for several days. Whatever he looked like when he came out, he did not smell good and it was not a fun experience. But in the middle of this, he prays and God, after miraculously having the fish swallow him and then preserving his life in the stomach, has the fish vomit him onto the land, and Jonah decides to finally obey the Lord. And so the next part is Jonah preaches in Nineveh 3, 1 through 9. And that's Jonah's ministry. We don't know exactly what he said. We just have a rough outline of... Forty days and God will overthrow the city. Now it might have been a little bit more <coughs> eloquent than that. Or he might have just gone around raving, basically saying, I've got to do it. I'm, I'm not going to put any effort into it or any joy into it. I'm just going to get it over with. But we know from the Bible that Jonah fully expected to watch the city get lit up. And he goes and gets a really good seat for the fireworks the problem is um, the city repented remember how I was telling y'all that most of the prophets fail in their mission to get repentance from the people they're preaching to it's not a failure I mean God God's in control of it and their ministry is to be faithful and the remnant was preserved and God's word is preserved but, you know, like, we expect that if the prophets actually had people repent and a whole nation, you know, fear the Lord, that they'd be pretty happy about it. But Jonah's not happy about it, is he? In fact, and I think the most important part of the book is the end, chapter 310 through 411, where Jonah goes... The sulking of Jonah and the mercy of God. Jonah goes and complains to the Lord because as he wants to watch the destruction of Nineveh, he finds a nice little shade tree or a shade vine. He sits under it and God sends a worm to eat it, it dies, and Jonah complains more. And so at the end of this scene, you have God asking Jonah a couple of questions where he says, you know, you care for this plant, though you didn't cause it to grow. Should I not care more about this city who has 120,000 souls that don't know their right hand from their left hand, meaning children. That's a fancy way of saying children. Over 120,000 children in it. And, you know, he keeps asking, like, what right have you to be mad? And so at the end of the book of Jonah, we have a question given to us. You know, I believe that scholars talk about why is Jonah so different from other prophets? And, they, and some of the theories are the way it was written is that Jonah goes back home after this and as he's thinking about God's questions and watching his own nation who God preserved trample on the things of God and ignore him and worship all these other gods, 
and he thinks back of this pagan nation who doesn't even have the law fearing the Lord and saying, okay, sackcloth and ashes, repent. And he's sitting there going, why are they repenting and God's own people aren't? And he starts going, maybe we aren't that great. Maybe the thing that's good about us is the stuff, is the grace that God has given us and it's not anything in us that makes us different, that makes us different from these Assyrians who actually repented. Maybe it's just God. And so Jonah kind of forces us to ask a question about really the heart of God for other nations and other people. Remember when I said that Jonah, his prophetic ministry to King uh, Jeroboam, perhaps as he's preaching to this wicked king and sees God bless this wicked people, like I said, they got a little bit proud, like, look, we're just we're such great people, children of Abraham. And it sounds like he walks away from the book of Jonah just having a little bit clearer view that, that God's ways are much higher than our ways and God's loyalties and mercies are much different than our loyalties and mercies. So... Any questions or comments on Jonah? So he probably had the Jonah book happen before he did the preaching? Now he probably preached to uh, Jeroboam first, early in his ministry. Got sent on this prophetic ministry towards the end. Because <coughs> remember, he's, he's resisting. Yeah. I don't want to go. I knew you were merciful. I knew you'd do this stuff. It's like answers that he knew, but he didn't want to get through his head. And he comes back home and later date goes, you know what, I'm going to write down my story of my interaction with God and the way that he expanded my mind to realize it's not really about okay. Israel as Israel. It's about God being merciful to us. Well, I look at it as another example how through the entire Old Testament and the New Testament, God doesn't want us to be perfect. He wants us to strive to be perfect but he wants repentance and repentance is turning away from that which you have, have sinned right. and therefore each of us he's to me it, it's saying I'm a God that will forgive you if you will ask for forgiveness and follow after me Right. and to me I always look at all of it from Jonah and the whale miraculously he had oxygen that he could live three days yep how did he come out of who you were talking about? As the hill came out exactly the way God wanted it for him to be willing to go. He either came out clean or he came out so filthy that he had to bathe and bathe and bathe right. before he could go. But God just, to me, it's always saying, look, I'm a merciful God, and if you'll ask for forgiveness, I'll forgive you. But that means you are to turn away from your sin. Right. How long they stayed turned away? I don't think. I think we can look and see when they they never eventually right. came back to the, the now, devil. Now, knowing your knowing your your ancient Near East history here, this is when Assyria is actually at a low point. Uh, if you remember from a few classes ago, we talked about how Assyria hit a low point, and the big kingdoms around became Aram. Um, the, uh, the Syrians in Damascus, Israel in the north. Um, this is a point where Egypt's even at a low point. Um, you kind of have some regional powers here flexing and getting big for a while. And then after a few more generations, Assyria has its eventual uh, peak where it gets powerful again, becomes a regional empire, and then the Babylonians uh, get them eventually. And so... This, uh, this point in Assyria's history is kind of weird. We don't know exactly what was happening to that king in Nineveh, but um, obviously he was not at the height of his nation's power whenever Jonah came and prayed. Perhaps they had just suffered some big defeats on the battlefield or had been uh, dealt some bad, some, some bad things from other nations, and maybe their heart was more ready than the book 
tells us background information wise, but whatever it is, the result is they did repent, they did turn, and um, Jonah, Jonah's ministry was successful. Now, if you'll look in the notes, Jonah's an odd prophetic book as it's more of a record of his shortcomings than of his message. That seems strange. The book is a message to Jonah. Who's the book against? It's against Jonah and in many ways against Israel. God expands the view of the reader through Jonah's complaints as he sulks over the vine and God says, well, shouldn't I have mercy on this great city? I think, and I, I don't know that I would have necessarily drawn the contrast, but I think it's interesting, uh, our Sunday school lesson this morning about holding a grudge uh, related to Joseph and his relationship with his brothers and all the wrongs they had done to him. And mm-hmm. yet he focuses in on God and says, hey, I'm, I'm not in God's place. And I forgive you. And then by contrast here, we see Jonah with that same sort of situation, but you know, pointing back to the fact that the you know, great thing about the Bible is it does tell the story of a bunch of us imperfect humans right. over against our perfect God that uh, shows us love. And seeing that even in the midst of recognizing God's love, he's still holding that grudge going, right. God. Mm-hmm. It's not fair, and the reality is it's not fair. Right, it but isn't. we need that grace. Amen. Anybody else? Look at the last thing before Amos. Jesus actually uses the book of Jonah in one of the most powerful rebukes of his generation. In Matthew 12, 41, he rebukes Israel and he tells them that the men of Nineveh will rise up in condemnation of this generation, talking to his cohorts, all the people around him, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and one greater than Jonah is here. That's... Now, Jesus is being, in a sense, prophetic. He's accusing the people of God of something. But it's interesting just to take a step back and realize what he's actually saying to them. You know, we've just talked about Jonah's preaching and how God designed it and Nineveh repented. Jonah was a sign to Nineveh for their repentance, but also a sign to Israel of their pride and their lack of understanding of God's designs. And so here's Jesus telling his generation that they're in a similar point. They can't see what God is doing. If they did, they would repent, like Charles said earlier about repentance. But they won't. And it's such an obvious thing for them. Like, this should be obvious to you. It's so obvious that if you don't get this, those guys from Nineveh long ago are going to laugh at you on the judgment going, look, they didn't get it. And they had someone a lot better than our fish preacher. (laughs) So it's just interesting how Jesus uses the book of Jonah He also uses the sign of Jonah with Israel, but I'm talking more about the book here. It's just interesting how this book is a lesson in many ways, uh, in many different contexts to people. I know this book is really big in promoting world missions. When they'll uh, talk about God's heart for the nations, that during this time, you know, here's Israel saying, we're God's people, we're happy. And then God says, hey, Jonah, I've got a mission for you. Okay, you know, version two, I've already told uh, Jeroboam one thing. What do I tell him this time? And he's like, I want you to write this down to the king of Nineveh. What, wait, a, wait a minute. King of Nineveh? So God's heart is always bigger than your heart. 
And that's one of the things that they drill in on missions training is that if you realize God's heart, even from the Old Testament, for those outside of Israel, you know, Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, a city on a hill. They were always supposed to be that. And Jonah had lost sight of it. God corrects him. And I believe the book, in many ways, is Jonah's repentance. Because he does not dress himself up in a nice suit and tie in the book. He comes off looking terrible. But that book presses on the wound many times where we say, ah, you know... I know I should love those people. I just don't want to. Hey, what was Israel's position with Assyria at that time? Well, Assyria, um, if you look at the, the map here, Assyria is about, uh, you know, I know at this point in time, Damascus is the big power up here. Hmm. They're the ones you got to worry about. You've also got the city-states here on the coast. Um, I'm not sure the status of the Hittites at this point. I don't think they were an issue. But Assyria was not coming down to bug them at that point. They could not project power uh, regionally at that point. Because Jonah seemed to have a bias against the city of Nineveh. Yeah, there, there wasn't. So as far as I know, Assyria was not the big boogeyman yet. Right. The bias against Assyria wasn't, you know, oh, that's like you know going up to another superpower and preaching to them. I think it was just those foreigners... Why won't you have me preach to my own people? That's, that's who you're supposed to be dealing with, God, not these foreigners. Um, and, you know, at the end of the book, Jonah complains saying, I knew you would let them repent. It wasn't, you know, and uh, many things in that book show a, a what to say, the pouting spirit of a three-year-old. But we're human. That's what we do oftentimes. We pout like toddlers. And so, who knows if that's really what Jonah thought or if that's just the line he took because he's mad about the vine still. The point is, this book is kind of his biographical repentance. I'm showing, uh, and this says Jonah was about 770 B.C. Mm -hmm. And then Israel's taken by captive by Assyria. 722. 722. Yep, about two generations later. <clears throat> so things turn over pretty rapidly for Assyria. Yeah, you know, um, when you look at uh, the lifespan of all these ancient empires, you do see kind of this generational cycle. Um, during the lifetime of Daniel, who did live a pretty long life, for example, mm -hmm. the Babylonian Empire hit its peak and then crashed. A lot of these empires did not have the staying power or institutional strength of later empires like Rome. And even to an extent... Uh, Persia and the Greeks, they were, in the, in the grand scheme of empires, they were very early, and they have about a generation cycle, then they're gone, and unless they had uh, great natural defenses and resources like Egypt, you know, we don't have, like the Egyptians have several good phases, the Babylonians, you know, had about two, the Syrians had about two. But after both times, there were multi-century crashes. And then this last one here, when the Babylonians torch um, the Assyrians after the battle of, I believe, Carchemish. Nineveh falls to the Medes and Babylonians, 612 B.C. Yeah, and uh, they're no more at that point. So, well, let's move into Amos. Now, Amos, his name means to lift or to carry or sometimes a burden, which, you know, as a prophet, a prophet often describes uh, the message of the Lord as a burden on them, a weight on them. And so I don't know if his name is a play on words with the fact that he has this burden against uh, the nations and against uh, Israel in particular. Amos... Um, is involved in agriculture. He is a tender of sycamore, uh, probably an estate of sycamores, and they produce some, and it's like, I don't think it's a sycamore tree like you think of it, it's, it's 
some type of Middle East variety. They, they produce a fruit or a berry and you pick them and I don't know what you do with them. I don't know if they were fermented or if they were dried and pressed into cakes like raisins. But whatever it is, it's something involving agriculture. Now, a lot of commentaries talk about him as being like a poor vegetable picker or something, almost like you say a day laborer. I don't think he is. Number one, his writing is way too sophisticated. Number two, the word for um, what he is in Hebrew could be talking about someone more who's like a manager of an estate or an overseer, a steward of an estate higher up. It doesn't mean he was out there you know, picking the, picking the fruit, uh, getting paid minimum wage. It could be that he was managing a large operation for a royal official or a noble or something like that, or maybe his family had money and that's what he did. But he's involved in agriculture. He's not one of the prophets or a son of the prophet. So he's an outsider from the prophetic ministry. And at some point in his life, the word of the Lord comes to him and says, go preach against Israel. And if you ever want to um, get into it, the Hebrew poetry in the book of Amos is beautiful. I mean, it is, uh, if you just stop and appreciate uh, the imagery used, and I'm going to write a word up here that you've probably heard me say before. It's my favorite type of poetry. It's called imagism. And uh, it's not so much about rhyming as much as it is using uh, words to paint pictures. And so you may rhyme, you may not. I know I quoted in here earlier in the semester, The Death of the Ball Turret Gunner, a poem from, I believe, the 1960s. And it's, you know, a very graphical display of war and makes you just deeply impressed with the terrible nature of it. And that's what imagism often does. It uses words to bludgeon you with something that gives you an emotional response. And a lot of Amos is like that. The book of Amos, um, just by way of outline, is, uh, is it's a pretty straightforward outline. And if you remember from the last class, we went over the beginning because the rhetorical uh, construction that the Lord gives Amos to use in preaching is just phenomenally engaging. I mean, he starts his first sermon with this almost like a little, it's not a rhyme, but it's almost like a little song. For three sins of so-and-so and for four, I will not relent. You know, and it's just like he keeps going, you know, about all these foreign nations around Israel. And the uh, my former pastor uh, who preached this book said, you could imagine the people of Israel sitting around the altar at uh, at uh, Bethel going, yeah, tell us more about how God's going to judge our enemies, you know, and against the Philistines for three sins and for four, yeah, you know, and they're getting into it, they're amening, whoo, you know, just, they're into it. And then he goes and hits Judah, and he said, you can imagine some of them going, wait a minute, they're our brothers, but you know, yeah, they they deserve their coming their comeuppance too because you know they, they don't listen to us anymore. And then after he's gone through six nations, the seventh and final is Israel, and the song has a little bit more detail to it. And so let's uh, let's read that really quickly here. I'm in Amos. Yeah, and so, you know, they would dry press figs. We can still get them from the store today, Mediterranean figs, dry press so that they stay good for a long time. So I imagine that's what they were doing with them. I I don't think they were making jelly, unfortunately. But uh, thanks for looking that up. I knew it was some type of fruit. Before this fruit fruit. could be ripened properly, a small hole had to be pierced in the bottom of its skin. Piercing was done by a hand and was tedious and time-consuming task. It's pretty interesting. Let the sweetness yep. <laughs> maybe maybe we'll get some dried figs in here for snack next week, all right? 
Judgment on Israel, Amos 2.6. Thus says the Lord. Now remember, there have been six nations mentioned before this. All around and then to Judah. And now Israel, the northern kingdom. His audience. And they've been, you know, like imagine them cheering up until this point. And then he said, at this point, all the amens go out of the audience. For three transgressions of Israel... And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And he brings up the charges now, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years into the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. So that's how the song went for Israel. Amos uh, lays out his message against them. And if you look at the outline I have, um, chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, you can see that uh, that's the song of judgment on the nations. Now, starting in uh, chapter 3 through 6, 14, he spells out Israel's sin in detail. And a lot of it is uh, it's done very poetically. Um, they talk about how terrible the rich elite in Israel was against the plight of the poor at that time. They talk about how there's just disregard for the basic quality of and value of human life by the rich elite, how they would trample over anybody and count uh, their lives as worthless just so they could get a little richer and, and live in fine paneled houses and drink wine out of bowls. One uh, section of Amos makes fun of their wives and calls them cows of Bashan and talks about how they just sit around all day guzzling one out of bowls from their husbands to get them more drinks. And so it's a very decadent lifestyle that Amos is critiquing in this message from the Lord, where the Lord is really mad at this. And we, we step back and go, well, why would God care if they're rich and God care if they're drinking a lot of wine, you know? But uh, a lot of points we don't realize that Amos is just drawn back from the law of Moses. The law of Moses spelled out that Israel is supposed to be a different economic creature than all of its neighbors, we talked a little bit last week with the imagery on gleanings from fields. Remember how Israel was supposed to harvest their fields? What were they supposed to do? Leave, Leave gleanings. Like in the book of Ruth, she goes into the fields, remember, and, and not only is she gleaning, but the workers, Boaz has told them, leave handfuls behind for her. So it was expected. It was kind of like a welfare system. If you were poor, you could go into fields. And in Israel, God had it set up. Leave food for the poor. I don't want anyone starving. Also, if you lost your land in bad business ventures and had to go into debt every uh, 49 years, it reversed. The mortgage got canceled on all not, uh, land that wasn't in your family from the beginning went back to the family it was there. Now, th this is a picture. Think about it. In Israel, no family lost their land in God's plan. And even if you were wiped out in battle, your brother was supposed to 
take your wife and have children for you, and those children would inherit your land. That was the kinsman redeemer. So there was this idea in Israel that no one was to lose their land and no one was to go without. If you took somebody's coat in pledge, you were supposed to give it back. I mean, there are all these laws that protect people from financial duress and harm. And so a lot of the sins Israel did wasn't just that they were rich and had nice houses and that they were poor people. They were directly violating the law of Moses. Their laws in Israel ignored the law of God and they no longer protected the poor. So just just some examples here. You don't have to write these down of of things that Amos brings out of the Torah, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Um, Religious prostitution, that's in 2.7. He condemns overnight pledges in 2.8. He talks about the consecration of Nazarites and how that was... uh, Israel got the Nazarites drunk, basically made fun of them or ridiculed them or, or glorified a profligate lifestyle for them to where the Nazarite vow was scorned. That's in 2.12. Uh, in 4.4, tithing is mentioned because the tithe was commanded in the Old Testament. In 4.5, you're supposed to sacrifice unleavened bread, but obviously I guess they, they were getting that wrong too. And so uh, they had burnt offerings, solemn assemblies, and free will offerings, all mentioned from the laws, but they were getting those wrong in the book of Amos. And so the book of Amos uh, is dealing, like most prophets are, with God's people breaking God's law. Spells out their sin in a couple of categories, but then it talks about how judgment is unavoidable. He basically says, you know, it's coming. When I was in a, a... Uh, study of the book of Amos in Hebrew I did my paper on one of the uh, poems where God says uh, you know if a trumpet calls out don't they hear it in the city I know I'm kind of misquoting it but it's just God saying like you know don't you listen when a trumpet calls out if a lion roars don't you know something's going to happen? And he says, you know, the trumpet is rung, the lion has roared. Basically like those things that alert you to judgment have already happened. It's unavoidable at this point. It's going to happen. You should have seen it already and you didn't. It's too late. And so Amos's message is this is going to happen. It won't be stopped. It's too late. But even in the middle of that, he spells out the charges clearly, the sins they've committed. He also gives a final appeal. And all that we can guess is that this is one of those things where like, if you listen now, even though this will still happen to your nation, God will take note of who it is and you'll be okay. You know, it's, he, he knows it's going to happen to the nation. Now it's like, you need to still listen so you can get out of this. And then finally... They talk about exile. At one point, um, they talk about the walls will be breached and you'll be marched out. And now when the Assyrians marched people out, they would put these giant hooks on chains in people's jaws, chain into big lines, and just march them out to wherever on their empire they wanted them, taking them away from their land and away from their gods. And so Amos tells them exactly what will happen to them. They will go into exile, and they do. And at the end of the book, um, chapter 7 through chapter 9, there are these five visions. These five visions are um, locusts, fire, a plumb line, which is what, I'll get to that in a minute. Late summer fruit, which makes sense that he's harvesting fruit, right? And the smitten temple. But at the end, we have restoration. And I'll get to that also in a minute. As you know, Amos is just doing here what the, what the, what the ministry of a prophet is. He's being a covenant mediator, and he's telling them, what the sins are, what's going to happen, but that God is still going to preserve his people in the end. 
So let's talk about the five visions or some. It's, it's funny. You, you read one book. This one says five visions. Well, you go to this book and it says four visions. But then uh, I think it's using the final vision as a different topic. But let's look in here in chapter 7. Chapter 7 of the book of Amos. Now this is how a vision works in the prophets. Oftentimes we try to make way too much of what a vision is. The Bible will often tell us what it means, but you'll go read books on the prophets and people spend a lot of ink trying to figure out what these visions mean. But usually it's told you what it means. So let's look in chapter 7. Uh, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings, which I guess the king's mowings are a, a certain period of time where the king gets all of that harvest and then everyone else gets everything else. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. So Amos is seeing what's going to happen and God shows him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send the locust right at this point of the harvest. And now Amos, you know, agricultural mind goes, No, no, if you do that, the whole crop's destroyed. They'll all starve to death. God, please don't let it be that. I mean, his heart is breaking for these people. And God says, okay, I won't do that. Verse 4, this is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. Once again, Amos goes, if you, if, if, if you burn up all their fields, they can't live. So God relents. Verse 7, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. This is a weird passage. First off, we don't know what the word plumb line really means. That's what we've always translated it as, because it, 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 the word is anach, I believe, in Hebrew. And it sounds like possibly a word that might be related in another language to a lump of tin or metal. And so people thought, well, maybe it's a lump of metal you hang from a plumb line and it shows you where the wall is. And so you've heard preachers talk about the plumb line. You better line up with God or you're not going to get, you know. Well, that verse doesn't say anything about the use of the plumb line. It doesn't say, I'm going to measure them. He says, I'm setting up a plumb line in the midst of my people. I will never again pass by them. It doesn't use carpenter language or anything or construction language. So what is it? Well, it puzzles scholars because that's the only place in the Old Testament that word is used. And, it, and we don't exactly know what it means. The thing is that we know what it sounds like. The word anak there, and I may be mispronouncing. I'll have to come back next week and double check. Sounds a lot like anachi, which means I, even I. And so God says, look, and, and Amos goes, oh, anach. I don't know what the object is. You don't know what the object is. Anach, I see it. And God says, I'm coming. It sounds like what he showed him. Whatever he showed him, it sounds like it. It's a play on words. You kind of understand what I'm saying? We don't exactly know what Amos saw, but God says it's not going to be locusts and it's not going to be fire. It's me. Yeah. I'm coming in the middle of the people. I'll ne I'm not going to leave it this time. I'm not just going to say, yeah, they're sinning again. And I'm going to destroy everything. So God is saying, I'm coming.
You don't want locusts, you don't want fire, then it's going to be me. And so Amos sees this, and like I said, we don't exactly know what it is. But we know the end result is that military invasion is going to happen. Now, at this point, Amaziah, verse 10, the, the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you. Remember, the prophets are outsiders. He's conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. Like, the preaching is so rough and violent and terrible, the people can't stand to hear it. They're running from him and they're scared. Amos has become an enemy of the state. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. So this message that God was coming to them and that the sword would level everything scared them. Verse 12, And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah, because Amos is from Judah, and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Remember, it had one of the golden cows there. Then look at Amos' response. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet. So he says, I wasn't doing this in Judah. I wasn't doing this. He says, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Rough stuff. Chapter 8. This is what the Lord showed me. So vision number 4. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, The end has come upon my people Israel. The word for end sounds like the word for summer fruit. It's another play on the word like, what do you see, Amos? A knock. A knock. I'm coming in their midst. What do you see, Amos? A basket of summer fruit. The end is what it sounds like. Well, the end, summer fruit, is coming to Israel. You see there's a play on words. Listen to this. Some of this it's terrifying, but it's just beautiful poetry. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. And here's the songs, ready? So many dead bodies, they're thrown everywhere, silence. You see the imagism? He says, you want to hear the hymns y'all are going to sing at church that day when the Assyrians come? Dead bodies everywhere, silence. Golly, I mean, this is like... You see why Amaziah doesn't want him preaching. <laughs> wow. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great? Talking about adjusting your scale so you get more. And deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it will all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt. Talking about the floods. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. 
they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. It's like, if you don't want me to preach, if you don't want my messenger to preach, then I'll make you have a famine of the word of God. Chapter 9, I saw the Lord sitting beside the altar and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. He continues and continues. If you look at the whole book, the Lord, the Lord God, that word is mentioned quite a bit. And at the end, um, you probably remember this from my last class, but I'll go over it here as closing. At the end, he talks about the restoration. After all this terrible stuff comes on Israel, uh, turn to uh, verse 11 of chapter 9 if you've got it. In that day... So, someday in the future, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnants of Edom. Remember, we talked about that last week. They did possess the remnants of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. More of that agricultural language. The mountains shall drip sweet wine. We had that language in Joel last week. And all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. Kind of like at the end of, of uh, the books last week. Um, they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. They shall never be uprooted again out of the land that I have given them. And before I read the last line, um, this whole book has been the Lord God, the Lord God. And look at the last line of the book. What does yours say? So the Lord your God. God. That, uh, i try to write it up here. The Lord your God. This, uh, I believe this is it. This is a cough with a pronomial suffix on it. I know this sounds really weird, but if in Hebrew, I want to say um, your hat, for example, your hat. I would write the word hat, and then I would put something at the end of it, um, that would mean it's yours. I wouldn't put the word in front of it. I'd put the word on the end. See that? So I write it last. And if you want to say the Lord your God, I'm doing the shorthand version of it here. I would say your God. This whole book, it's been this, God. But at the end, after pronouncing this judgment, God says, but you know what? In the last days, I'm going to gather you back. And great things are going to happen. I'm going to gather in all the nations. And I'm promising to you that as the Lord, your God, because you can't get away from me. Even your sins aren't going to keep you from me. And so God's telling his people with the last line of the book, you're still mine. I still have a plan and everything's still going to be made right. So that is the book of Amos. Any questions? Let's go through the last five questions real quick here, and then we'll be done. Uh, we can see that Amos is more of a traditional motif for a prophet of the Lord. There is the covenant blank role, mediator, mediator that was shown in many of the non-writing prophets. There is a sharp, there, there is a sharp, oh, there, my grammar is bad. 
There are sharp descriptions of the blank that made judgment unavoidable. Sins. Yeah, they are, they, he, he spells it exactly what they're doing. Selling people for slavery, temple prostitution, worshiping other gods. There is an appeal for turning or blank away from those sins. Repentance. Even in the middle of that, Amos is preaching. There is, there is an expectation for repentance. There is a promise of impending blank from the Doom. Lord. Doom. Doom. Judgment. And last, there is a promise of merciful blank from the Lord after it is all over. Restoration. Restoration. Reconciliation. Or reconciliation. Both work. Mm.